Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. Today, instead of going through the looking glass, we are smashing it. Oliver Stone's 1991 paranoid thriller JFK is a stylish, flashy, entertaining film. But what about its substance? Here to separate fact, fiction, and fallacy are two returning guests to the show. Books editor at Reason, Jesse Walker. Howdy. And research fellow at the Cato Institute and our old friend, Paul Masco. I'm so old, I'm ancient. (laughs) (laughs) Where to begin with this movie? Uh, Is it the three-hour long runtime that I forced these two to sit through? Is it the impeccable accent work of Joe Pesci and John Candy? Is it the sort of undercurrent of homophobia that runs throughout a lot of it um, that may or may not be reflective of what it actually is covering. I think what we want to start with, though, is what Stone is trying to do with this movie. So he has stated that one of his primary goals with JFK was to provide a rebuttal to the Warren Commission's sort of what he calls a fictional myth, the kind of story that they concoct and state like these are the events that we believe played out and how they occurred um and and he wanted to kind of counteract that and provide something else and lays out a pretty didactic uh case in this film pretty straightforwardly now what is he trying to do in contrast to what was commonly assumed to be the truth at the time of this film's release well, I suppose he missed uh, very little is the, <laughs> the first reaction. Everything's in there. It's He threw the kitchen sink at the question of the JFK assassination. So it is a hodgepodge of a bunch of different theories, not all of which, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, which you would think would contradict each other. So, you know, it's not just one sinister actor. We have all the sinister actors involved. There's references to the mob, the CIA, to Johnson, to, I mean, just go down the list. And um, he he's a bit agnostic when it comes to which conspiracy theory is responsible. And so he just goes with, well, all of them. There's one giant conspiracy responsible for killing um, Kennedy, uh, which is the polar opposite of the Warren Commission that he uh, uh, approached, which he is uh, criticizing, which is that it's, it's simple, it's straightforward, that there's a single shooter, uh, three shots uh, from one location. It's straightforward. There's no big conspiracy. It's a lone wolf. And um, so he takes exactly the opposite approach uh, in the film. Yeah, it's a, um, I think he does have a theory that he likes in particular. Um, not everything in the movie adds up to it. And I think there's actually a little bit of tension between um, uh, the author and the work here. I mean, I, th- I think he believes, you know, I mean, they keep saying it's a coup d'etat, that he thinks the national security state killed Kennedy. Um, he uses details more as a um, as a narrative device than as something that's supposed to add up. I, I at at some point I think um, one might notice during his uh, Kevin Costner's summational speech that he's no longer even arguing about Clay Shaw. There, he's just making a case about you know. I mean, I mean, he stopped talking about the guy he has on trial and is just trying to criticize the Warren Commission report. And I actually do have a juror being interviewed afterwards, you catch like a snippet of it as the camera goes by saying, well, I, I, I think, uh, I'm not sure that there, I think there may have been a conspiracy, but I don't think he didn't prove that this guy was part of it. That's not the direct quote, but that was the gist of it. Um, so, 
But at the same time that he has this idea, which we can talk about a bit more um, later, the um, his uh, he really does cover a lot more. They even have that moment where the FBI um, pulls one of Garrison's uh, sort of leg men aside and and says, uh, "Well, we know it was Castro who did this, but we don't want people, you know, calling for war. We've got to keep that from coming out." Now that completely contradicts um, Stone's idea, but he leaves it ambiguous as to whether he thinks this was a cover story that, or whether this is what the FBI actually believed and this explained their participation in the cover-up, if it's a mix. Um, so I, what you end up having is, uh, and, and then you just add the um, the whole style of these almost psychedelic montages um, in, in the film. Um, you have these cascading images and ideas that sort of in practice sweep aside any single story about what happened in Dallas. And whether or not Stone means for this to be the case, the film starts looking less like a historical thesis and more of a panoramic view of the psychedelic landscape of uh, post-assassination paranoid America. Um, and uh, one sort of odd thing about this movie, I, I, I last saw it um, before this. We, I rewatched it for this podcast in the theater when it came out. Um, and I remembered it being much more of those montages stayed in my mind. Uh, much of the actual drama um, did not, and I had forgotten how much of this was kind of a straightforward, conventional, and kind of tedious message movie uh, with these cliche scenes between, you know, uh, 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 Jim Garrison and his wife, um, you know, like, and it's dry, dr- pulling him away from his family and so on. Um, and it really kind of struck me that so many movies, um, you know, they slow to a crawl during the exposition and they come alive during the action. This one slows to a crawl during an action, but it comes alive during these info dumps. Um, <laughs> that's where the art of the movie is. And it, it was really kind of odd to revisit it and and and, uh, and and realize that this, especially since, you know, Stone went on to make Nixon and, and Natural Born Killers, which were even more psychedelic. And he went further and further in this direction for a while. And I forgot how much of his sort of earlier style was was still embedded in this movie. Yeah, we kind of have two movies combined into one. Part of that's it was written by two different folks. It was Stone focused his writing efforts on Dealey Plaza, on Kennedy, straight more straightforwardly the the actual assassination, and I think the national security apparatus um, uh, sections. You know the the uh, shadowy, smoke filled room uh, scenes. Whereas Zachary Sklar wrote the uh, he took he basically adapted. Jim Garrison's autobiography. So the tedious drama, the, you know, poor sissy Spacek um, having to keep up with, uh, you know, Kevin Cosner in a, a thin role that was written for her, bless her heart. Like that stuff comes. So, so you have kind of two different movies. You have Jim Garrison's laudatory autobiography of himself that gets adapted for the part of the movie. And then you have what Stone cares about, which is uh, the, the the assassination and the national security apparatus, and they don't necessarily hold together real well, which is, I, I think, why – what do you think, Jesse? I, I mean, it's also based on two books. There's the Garrison memoir, and there's also a Jim Mars book, which I used to have. I mean, Jim Mars went on to make – write books about UFOs and so forth. He's not – one of the you know more respectable conspiracy researcher types, but this was his first. I think I don't know if his first book, but the sort of first major book. I mean, it, it got a real boost from the movie. But even before that, I remember uh, my my then girlfriend uh, for my birthday giving me this sort of conspiracy pack of that and Silent Coup 
and the keys of this blood. And this That's is the one. Love. Yeah, I, I, um, I still know. Well, she she knew I, even then I, I was interested in uh, tracking this stuff. Um, so I, I used to have this book, and I remember it being a mixture. I mean, it was... I think it was formatted as an encyclopedia, but it, it certainly, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it certainly felt like one. And it was this mixture of like areas where there are real, actual open questions about what happened and stuff that he just found in the LaRouche publication, you know, <laughs> just sort of all thrown in as though there's no difference um, between, you know, the, uh, the uh, you know, these, um, these narratives. It sounds a lot um, like I, the movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that aspect, and that's what yeah. I'm getting at. It's like, this feels like the seed of the sort of psychedelic side of the movie, which again, I mean, I happen to like, I didn't like it as much um, as the first time I saw it. Um, but I, I do think it, it it's a, a skillfully made and, and an enjoyable movie. And it is, you know, because of that psych, those, the montages, the weird parts, not the, um, you know, not uh, uh, Kevin Costner, you know, being Gary Cooper light and trying to, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, represent truth, justice in the American way. There's a reason that this film, I believe, won the Oscar for best editing of yeah. all the things. Like as a composition and its component parts, there's a lot of really, really great technical things going on. And artistically, it certainly is a is visionary in a certain way. And it has a, a, a coherent artistic sort of oeuvre about it, even if the message gets a little bit muddled at times, or at least is is justified on grounds that are tenuous to be charitable. I should say this came out the same year as a um and, and Rain Me and I start talking about other movies, but this came out the same year as <laughs> Craig Baldwin's Tribulation 99, which is the real conspiracy masterpiece of 1991 um which was a real conspiracy year because also david mammoth's homicide and slacker there was a whole bunch of sort of conspiracy oriented films that year um or partly conspiracy oriented in the case of slacker but tribulation 99 um is also done in this sort of wild um editing montage ways but all the material or almost all the material that we see comes from old B movies and things like that. And there's this narrator who spins this deliberately absurd conspiracy theory involving aliens and so forth, which is sort of offered to justify all the crimes of the cold war and the national security state. There's like, well, I mean, basically the upshot is, and you have to understand they were, you know, they, they were sacrificing these, these people so that we would not be destroyed. Um, and then periodically they would also have um, appearing on the screen um, text telling us about the actual facts of what had happened in, you know, Guatemala or what have you. So it's this multi, and there's actually a little bit of the Kennedy assassination in there too. Like the, um, the narrator ends up saying like we, sh that um, he made those shots, you know, so quickly because he was an Android and things like that. So <laughs> it it's, yeah. it's very, I mean, it's much more, um, it's both wilder and ultimately more coherent, more controlled in sort of like getting across a thesis and, and, and channeling these, these montages and all these sort of multiple layers towards a, towards an argument than Stone's movie is, but it was a 45 minute low budget cult video. So it did not get as much attention <laughs> as Oliver Stone's, um, you know, cast of thousands, uh, Oscar bait. It does have that like forward motion. So, so you know, I, the the content, the the argument is risible, but the the yeah, the filmmaking part of it is 
um, very well done. It, it has that, you know, if you watch, is it Searchlight about the, you know, the cover up? Spotlight. Journalist, Spotlight, Spotlight, mm-hmm. co- the, the Catholic Church cover up and the journalists. Well, it, it is also an exposition dump. Um, but it has that same sense of forward forward momentum and every line has a bunch of meaning behind it. And so every – now, in this case, a lot of those little factoids that get dropped in constantly uh, don't actually mean anything if you you look at them up close. If you take the time, which who has the time, you know, other than these semi, you know, quasi-professional – uh, conspiracy researchers to look at every single one of the thousands of factoids dropped. But if you look it up close, it doesn't make a ton of sense, but just, you just let it wash over you, right? Like the fact that the, uh, that Oswald only had $200 in his checking account and that's less than the ticket cost to Moscow. It gets, just gets dropped in and every line like that has an ocean of meaning or implication, I should say behind it. And so, yeah, the way to approach it is just to let it wash over you. I think uh, Jesse's psychedelic approach um, uh, makes a lot of sense. And to take it, I don't know, I suppose seriously, but not literally. Um, it's not a movie meant to be taken literally. Uh, maybe Stone meant it that way, but that's not the way, uh, that's not the best way to watch it. There are also images that sort of serve as Easter eggs. Like they never talk about the Umbrella Man and that alleged mystery, but that you have on at least two occasions showing the person raising his umbrella and that's thrown in. Um, they do. They show the person the alleged um, uh, alteration of the photo of Oswald with his rifle. You see them making that long before you have the callback to it. And if you're not familiar with the claims that this was a, um, uh, a not photoshopped because they photoshop didn't exist that you know the 60s um, uh, analog by hand with scissors version of Photoshop yeah. <laughs> um, that it was. Uh, that that then you might not even remember having seen those, but if you've been kind of if you're familiar at all with the literature, you've probably you probably were picking up on that before. And if you're not familiar with it, it's just still filmed in a way that seems suspicious, and you're watching it, and it all feels like you're being flooded with stuff that's important in some way. You know, it's it, there's this way in which like it, it it is a movie made for a fandom. That will seem familiar to those of us who like who encounter Marvel movie fandoms, where every there's little Easter eggs and droplets and tidbits that aren't necessary for the viewer, but if you are one of the fans, one of the true believers, it's just like, ooh, in the background I see that suit, which corresponds with this superhero villain or you know comic book hero. Um, that that's what this. So in a sense, JFK is taking advantage of this immense um, conspiracy. JFK conspiracy fandom that had developed in the really in the seventies is when it takes off for reasons we can talk about. But um, yeah, it's think think of it like the Marvel movie. Yeah. And, and that's actually what I want to ask about Paul is why, like why is the JFK assassination conspiracy itself? Like such a big deal. When I was in high school, we would be in history class and we had like a week to cover everything from 1945 through post 9-11 America. So I don't think I ever really understood the significance of his assassination as a sort of cultural touchstone other than something that was picked apart and the fact that he was president and it's a big deal when presidents are killed. So what was going on in the culture at the time and I guess in the years after that in the 70s when these really came to prominence that made this the mother of all conspiracy theories. When I used to teach uh, America in the 1960s, we would dedicate 
two lectures to the assassination and then to the conspiracy theories that talk about what it tells us about American society in the 60s. Um, so you, you should have taken my class, Landry. That's clearly the, the answer here. But no, it, we are as far away – we are farther away from when this movie was released than the movie was from the assassination of JFK. So it, it's been a long time. Something like uh, fewer than a quarter of Americans were born – before 1963, and, and let alone old enough to actually remember it live. So there's a lot of distance between then and now. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure it it, it 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 is distant. I mean, when I would talk to my students about the 1960s, I might as well have been talking about the 1860s for how current it felt to them. It just was too distant for a lot of uh, uh, college students, age folks today. But um, as far as where the, the kind of political milieu out of which you get uh, rampant conspiracy theorizing about the uh, Kennedy assassination. I think it's important to remember up until the 1960s, really up until uh, the late 60s, 70s, um, the CIA, the, 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 the foreign intelligence and domestic surveillance apparatus, the CIA, FBI, um, was doing all kinds of shady things. So Oliver Stone is critiquing something that was real, which was that, um, uh, you know, the CIA would routinely topple governments in, in places like Iran and, and in Latin America. They would, they were up to all kinds of skullduggery in Cuba, attempts to assassinate, like Operation Mongoose is mentioned in the film. That was real. They did try to assassinate uh, Fidel Castro via, you know, poison cigars and, and things like that. Um, Bay of Pigs obviously was real and a, a big embarrassment to the Kennedy administration. But the, um, so the CIA did stuff that was just as fantastical as the things portrayed in the movie, which doesn't tell you that they did the things in the movie, but it made it all believable, um, especially as um, what was once considered ordinary uh, supporting the CIA's endeavors was once one's bound patriotic duty as a, as a good red-blooded American in the 50s and into the 60s. That doubts about that kind of trust in American institutions has – um, crept in increasingly by the 19, late 1960s and 1970s. So when you know the Pentagon Papers are released showing that the U.S. government had massively and uh, uh, routinely lied about the conduct and progress of the Vietnam War, when that gets leaked to the American people um, as a, just a series of scandals um, that come out in the 70s about CA skullduggery and again lying to Congress, lying to the American people, people start saying, well, if they if we know they lied about this, what else might they be lying about? Which is why if you look at public support for conspiracies about the JFK assassination, kind of doubt in the Warren Commission, it spikes in the 70s. So it doesn't, you know, immediately after, uh, I mean, there are people who think, well, maybe it's more complicated than this. There's stuff that's not explained. Uh, Jim Garrison, our crusading DA, uh, he spikes some doubt in the late 60s and in, in 67, 68, 69. But Popular support for the idea that Kennedy was assassinated by, you know, uh, sinister, sinister, shadowy groups really takes off in the 70s as people find out about sinister, shadowy government authorized groups doing stuff. So in a lot of ways, the conspiracy theorizing is um, about JFK is a is is the cultural backlash to people finding out that the U.S. government uh, lies and does does shady things uh, with its, uh, you know, foreign foreign policy and foreign and domestic surveillance apparatus. Um, so that's that's the milieu. Can I put some numbers to the public opinion? Because this is kind of interesting. Like two weeks after the um, the shooting, 
there's a, um, a Gallup poll saying that 52% of Americans thought there was a conspiracy. That doesn't mean a CIA conspiracy. That's that they thought that more people than Oswald were involved. Um, in 1964, uh, the month after the um, Warren Commission report comes out, you've got, all right, a majority of people saying that they think, um, all right, he acted alone. But that is the last time you ever see a plurality believing that, uh, I mean, even a plurality, let alone a majority, believing that he acted alone. Um, it starts to change in the late 60s. I mean, again, this includes people who think it's a communist conspiracy, other ideas that are not the backlash ideas that um, that Paul's talking about. And then it really starts to take off in the 70s. And actually, the highest number that I've seen um, was an AB poll, ABC poll in 1983, where 80% of the public um, believed that it had been a conspiracy. Again, not all agreeing on the same conspiracy, but at least thinking we don't buy the official story, the Warren Commission story. Um, and there are also, I don't have these numbers in front of me, but although conspiracy belief in general is pretty constantly high in American uh, society, and actually the Usensky uh, parent study um, that looks at, uh, that just sort of looked for how many uh, conspiratorial letters to the editor the New York Times um, ran, had a huge spike in the 1950s, even bigger than in the Watergate 70s, because uh, mostly because of Cold War fears. Um, but the um, there is a real change in the public um, attitude towards the CIA and the FBI in the mid-70s. They just plunge. Um, and that's a direct result of things like the Church Committee, Watergate, Pentagon Papers, the expose of uh, COINTELPRO, which actually predates Watergate by a bit. Um, and that really does. Um, and that's also the 70s. This in, this influences popular culture. I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the precursors to this movie, um, because there's a whole wave of 70s conspiracy thrillers in the 1970s. And I, when I say conspiracy thrillers, I just don't, I don't just mean like all sorts of spy movies and horror movies have conspiracies in them. You know, you know, Rosemary's Baby is a conspiracy movie. I mean, the ones where you have, um, you know, either um, the intelligence agencies or some secret force behind the intelligence agencies or some secret force that rese clearly resembles the uh, con uh, intelligence agencies um, conspiring against the public. And there's a wave of these movies in the 70s. Um, and although you've had some earlier films that, you know, address the, the um, Kennedy assassination in some ways, I mean, I, I, you could, I don't think you, I think you'd need multiple hands to count all the Brian De Palma movies that in some way allude to it. Um, yeah. And there's, there's even, I, in 1969, there was a spaghetti Western about the assassination of James, uh, of, um, yeah, James Garfield, where, I mean, the real Garfield was shot in, in DC, but they moved this to Dallas, which they, yeah. even though it was a bustling city, <laughs> then they turned into like a sort of standard, like Western, you know, town with like the one street, but they have, you know, the, uh, the president in a coach coming around a corner looking just like Kennedy in the, in the limousine wow. with, you know, and they, they have like the wanted for treason posters. I mean, it's clearly they're doing, they just like, how can we do JFK as a Western? I, unfortunately it's not a good movie, but it's weird enough to be watchable. But in the seventies, there's a, um, there's a, these wave of films and there's three in particular that are important precursors to JFK. One is executive action which comes out in 1973. Dalton Trumbo wrote it, um, but it was based on a story by two um, uh, two well-known JFK uh, conspiracy theorists, Mark Lane and Donald Freed. Um, 
And it, this one is, of the three movies, this is the one that's actually a tedious bore. It's not good. But it's the one that's also overtly, it is, this is the powerful people getting together and plotting the assassination of John F. Kennedy, explicitly called Kennedy. I mean, explicitly called John F. Kennedy in the movie. Um, it's sort of weird in that it's both the um, super cynical, like there's even a moment where they... Um, they say that the secret purpose of the Vietnam War is to bring down the third world population, just sort of casually drops that. But they also <laughs> have a moment where uh, one of the conspirators isn't sure if they want to do it. And they say, there ought to be a better way of settling things like this. Have you researched his private history, meaning Kennedy's? And the response is, oh, if we could find anything, we would have we would have used that. <laughs> you know, which, and so it's on, on the one hand, it's like super cynical, but also just impossibly innocent about Kennedy himself, and also, and this happens with Stone too, how much Kennedy himself was implicated in all this Cold War skullduggery. Um, but that was a, a direct precursor to the uh, to JFK. Um, and also Donald Freed um, wrote a much better movie, um, uh, Robert Altman's Secret Honor, his Nixon conspiracy movie, which was sort of a precursor to Oliver Stone's Nixon. So I think of Freed as kind of this ghost that Oliver Stone follows around. The second one is The Parallax View, 1974 Alan Pacula thriller, very effectively done as one of the best brainwashing sequences outside of a clockwork orange, you know, ever put on on screen. Um, and it's not specifically about Kennedy as it is about this idea of a whole string of assassinations being masterminded. Um, you know, the whole Kennedy, Malcolm X, um, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. In this case, a, a fictional politician is, is killed as part of that string and and the mystery begins. And then the third one um, came out in 1979 and in my view, by far the best JFK conspiracy movie, Winter Kills, based on a Richard Condon novel. It's played as a dark comedy. As with JFK, they go through every conceivable um, uh, perp. I mean, in this case, the the it's a the president is called like Timothy Keegan or something like that. So they're they're freed from trying to be connected to and and the actual. I won't say um, who they actually turn out, who turns out to be behind it, but it, uh, it's so as not to spoil it. But it is like just an extremely dark joke. Um, with, I mean, both in well, I, I won't say more. Um, but it, it is, and all these movies uh, were controversial, both Executive Action and Winter Kills, you know, uh, had enough trouble, you know, in getting theatrical bookings and things like that, that there were legends of them being, you know, quote unquote, suppressed and, and so on. But they are all, um, and along with just a whole string of sort of 70s conspiracy thrillers, these are precursors to JFK. Um, but when JFK comes out, um, it comes out in 1991. It is it is accidentally a post-Cold War movie. This comes out less than a week before the USSR dissolves. Um, I mean, it's. I think it's like a five-day period. It's a, uh, and so when this comes out, it, when it's made, this feels like. I mean, the summation, like Oliver Stone is doing his version of these seventies. Um, uh, I mean, he's clearly been formed by that moment. Um, he's clearly been formed by you know his experiences in Vietnam and just sort of being lied to by a national security state. Um, but it sort of scans as a left-wing critique because during the Cold War, um, criticizing what we people now call the deep state was seen mostly as a left-wing thing to do. Um, and uh, you had, you know, libertarians who signed on to this. You had some far-right populists who, over the course of the '80s, um, started to um, um, converge with the critique. And actually, um, uh, Mark Lane, one of the original 
Kennedy conspiracy theorist, was in the 80s serving as attorney for um, the, the far-right liberty lobby in a JFK-related um, uh, 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 lawsuit. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, despite these sort of outliers, um, when it comes out, the uh, it's seen as this kind of left-wing um, perspective. Um, and there's this big debate on the left with some people defending it and other people like Christopher Hitchens and Alexander Coburn critiquing it, saying, no, Kennedy was also part of this Cold War, uh, uh, a national security state monster. Um, you know, don't, don't, I don't give him a, a pass like this. Um, but it's a, um, but this was sort of seen for the most part as an intro left um, uh, debate, even if some of the critics were said things like, you know, you sound like a bunch of birchers here. Nowadays, if this movie came out now, it would have a huge Trumpian fan base. They, I mean, people saying oh, this yes. is, yeah, here's a story about the deep state bringing down uh, a leader um, who, who challenged them. Um, the val- the sort of the, the valences of the arguments here have changed so much. Um, and that's true, not just because of the specific experiences of Donald, of Donald Trump and, and, uh, and the people around him, but also because the cold war is the distant past. Now we, um, we talked about this in our X-Files episode. There was this sort of tendency in the nineties to revise the history of the cold war to even among people who had been conservatives, who had been more likely to support um, the um, uh, you know the national security state when the alternative was the Soviet Union to reconsider you know whether these folks were on your side or not and in some ways this movie ends up being um, you know one of the sort of uh, early signposts towards that um, uh, and it's interesting Oliver Stone if you look I mean he was not pro Trump at all um, you know he endorsed uh, I think he voted for Jill Stein and then for Biden. Um, but he, um, you know, he's, he's very much his, his take on the, on the, the Russia stuff is he's not, he is that this was, you know, that, that this was a, a, a fake news, um, which is, he, he claims to have gotten the Sputnik vaccine for COVID-19, <laughs> if that tells you anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there is this way in which like, I mean, I, I think the comparison's apt. Like you can imagine coming to theaters near you in 2040, uh, a movie starring uh, Sidney Powell and like, you know, the crusading, uh, uh, well, I guess not, uh, you know, uh, attorney general like Jim Garrison, but like playing that Jim Garrison role, Sidney Powell is going to uh, release the Kraken. So he's going to get to the bottom of the truth. And like, it's, it's all about, you know, this, there's this group of poorly substantiated uh, allegations, little factoids. Like, did you see that video? This person took a longer than usual break and came back with something in their pocket while in between counting ballots. And, ooh, do you see this box under the table? Where did that box come from? And they take all these factoids uh, from disreputable sources, from, you know, political grifters and opportunists and weave it together into a grand story about the, the coup d'etat. The real coup d'etat is not January 6th. It's Joe Biden keeping office despite losing the election. So, so I mean, you can imagine that is what this would be 20 years from now. So, so right? Paul, my, my, my question for you is um, since uh, Jim Garrison had the cameo as Earl Warren in this movie, who would the real yeah. Sidney Powell have a cameo as in, uh, <laughs> in the movie that you're imagining? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe is Kellyanne Conway's character in here in the in the movie or something? I don't know. Well, the, the um Mike my Pence. favorite cameo in the film, Mike Pence. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, is uh, I think it's Perry Russo. Is that his name? There, there is a a bit player, one of that like you know a uh, uh, gallery of lowlifes who are part of this complicated conspiracy early on in the film. 
Um, he actually, uh, later on, he alleges that Jim Garrison strong armed, armed him. A bunch of people involved in the story later said that Garrison would alternately, you know, offer them pardons or offer to bribe them or, or, or time off their sentences or would threaten them with further punishment unless they said what he wanted them to say. Uh, one of those guys who he then went back and forth on the question of what extent Garrison um, uh, strong armed him. But he he gets a, a bit part in the film. He's actually the guy in the bar early on who's like, I'm glad they killed that SOB. You know, uh, that's one of the actual people uh, from the, you know, the complicated New Orleans nightlife scene. Uh, that that Jim Garrison investigates. So the whole thing is just yeah, and and I can say but now that, that, that Garrison is apparently a better actor than Russo. I I thought that was very not a well delivered line, but as Earl Warren, <laughs> Garrison was a, no yeah. Can can I just say about about the cast here? I mean, I'm not a big fan of Kevin Costner's performance. I think he does fine no, with the, it's with the so speech. Flat. I mean, the speech that's oratory, not acting. But yes, he delivers a good speech at the end. But it's um they have so many. Good actors, and and a few of them are wasted, like Sissy Spacek. But like John Candy, just act circles around uh, Kevin Costner in their he's, in their he's thing doing together. One hundred percent, like Michael Caine in the Muppet movie, which is my standard for going so hard in a role with that you have no right going as hard <laughs> it, as I, you do. It just yeah. became like, why is he remembered as this kind of clown from SCTV, and and Costner is the guy who keeps getting <laughs> starring roles, um, and and also. So I, is this the only time that Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau were in a movie but did not get screen time together? I, I, they should <laughs> so. have written something where Senator Russell mm-hmm. Long meets this like life um, assistant to the private investigator just so they could do a little bit of old shtick together. Well, I, it, would, it would have fit somehow. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, all the A-listers in Hollywood wanted to be part of this film. I mean, they, the cast is stellar. I mean, Donald Sutherland, you go down the list. Yeah. And I mean, it is important. It is also a film that was viewed through the lens of the Iran-Contra controversy, which is just a few years before. I mean, that's in the headlines as they start producing this movie, um, even just a few years before the release. And you can see the notes being dropped. Like they talk a lot about money laundering. There's talk about, uh, you know, it, they're clearly thinking here about that exchange of, you know, selling drugs and arm shipments and that. So so it, as part of your point, Jesse, about this being uh, uh, perceived as a left wing critique of the national security state in 1991 that's very much in their minds but as far as the acting i think tommy lee jones uh just giving his all um going overboard with his like very loose uh villain in this film uh poor the poor fella i mean the guy in real life was uh did not deserve uh clay clay shaw here didn't deserve what he got but i mean maybe this brings us up to the question of homophobia in the film um, and you and, mentioned and even, this, Jesse, that even more so in the Garrison investigation itself. I mean, it's um, I don't want to say subtle is the word for it in the Stone film, but you can um, at least make the case um, that the um, he would say, well, I mean, a lot of these characters were gay. It just happens to be that way. And then you still have things like, well, but you have the scene with the guy. As dressed as the, the gold painted Hermes, just painted you know? gold, but, but doing Garrison, a bunch of like what, snuff and things like that. But the, oh one thing that they, I, I mean, this is a true fact that Jim Garrison um, had been an anti-vice crusader as district attorney in um, in New Orleans. There's a recent book by Alicia Long, "Cruising for Conspirators," which is all sort of about this. It's uh, I recommend it. Um, 
and who, I mean, increased arrests um, for um, homosexuality-related charges, but did not, but mo- a lot of those did not actually go to um, trial, which led to theories that there was a shakedown going on or act or searching for ways to um, um, get leverage over people to use as informants to get or to get the, the um, testimony he wanted to from. And a lot of this fed into his investigation. And in fact, at one point early on, like one of the first articles about it, his working theory was that it was, quote, the assassination had been, quote, a homosexual thrill killing. And then he compared it to Leopold and Loeb. And um, hang on, I got the... Um, I've got the, uh, the, the the quote here. Let me get this. Um, you can understand his motivation, Garrison said. Kennedy was a virile, handsome, successful man. Everything fairy was not. In addition, there was the thrill of staging the perfect crime. Remember the, Leopold, the Loeb and Leopold case in Chicago? It was the same with Kennedy. Um, <laughs> now, he moves on from this, but he still continues to sort of like, you know, be looking for, you know, and there's a sort of assumption, um, you know, that all the gays know each other. Um, I mean, even do, there's a subculture, you know, but it sort of goes beyond that. There's a, um, this, another bit of historical context for the investigation is the so-called Lavender Scare, um, which was not what it was known as at the time. I I think David um, Johnson uh, gave it the term. He wrote a very good book, The Lavender Scare. Um, But after World War II, there was this sort of wave of fears of of, uh, homosexual men as sex predators. And then it sort of in the 50s flowed into the Cold War and there was worries, and a lot of people, many more people, there were worries that um, to be gay and working for the State Department or the national security state was to be a security risk. Um, and there was a crackdown, and many more people in the 50s lost their jobs for being gay or allegedly gay um, than for being communist or allegedly communist, which makes sense because there are a lot more gay people than communists in America, right? And um, that's part of the... Um, the backdrop to this, I mean, that in turn sometimes boomeranged. There were like rumors about Joe McCarthy being gay, for example, rumors that might have been more than rumors about J. Edgar Hoover. Um, and then um, Garrison, of course, manages to eventually turn this around into a part of his critique of the national security state itself. Um, but it's a, um, there was even The Realist, which was Paul Krasner's um, satiric magazine um, that was like sort of one of the big things in the underground press in uh, the 1960s, ran a, a parody in April 1968 that one of the words that had been tossed around by right-wing um, anti-gay cold warriors in the 50s was the homin term, sort of play on the common term, the communist international, but saying homosexual international. And um, James Curry, writing under the pseudonym Reginald Dun- uh, Dunsany, uh, wrote this idea that it, it, this article begins with these real quotes from Garrison. Um, uh, about it being a homosexual thrill killing, and then extending from there to saying, "Well, he has exposed the, the Hominturn and it and its plot against uh, Kennedy and 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 the body politic," and go and and actually, um, this was um, mistaken for I, I I was praising David Johnson's book, The Lavender Scare, and I and I maintain my praise for it. I learned a lot from it, um, um, but, but one small criticism is he mistook this for a real conspiracy tract rather than a, a parody. Um, and I, when I was writing my book about um, uh, the history of conspiracy theories, I, I and I was um, interacting a lot with Paul Krasner, who 
published The Realist and then became something of a conspiracy theorist himself, um, I told him that you know, this had happened and he wrote back, you just made my day because he always loved it when people mistook his uh, satires for the real thing. But yeah, so this is part of, this is a huge um, part of the backdrop to the Garrison um, investigation. And Stone kind of has his cake and eats it too because he's willing to sort of draw on all this homophobic imagery and to have this sort of implicit opposition between this low-life world of homosexuals and the, the French quarter and so on versus the family, the straight shooting family man, Jim Garrison, and and this sort of undercurrent of, you know, whether he's being pulled away from his family by this, you know, that's sort of, there's sort of implications of, you know, the underlying currents of, you know, of uh, the, the non-heteronormative or whatever term we want to use, uh, world that he's, he's dealing with. Um, but he doesn't include things like Garrison thinking it was a, a, a gay um, a thrill sh- a killing and things like that. He he just sort of keeps it in the on the level mostly of subtext um, and lets Garrison be um, you know be portrayed as this as as this person motivated by other concerns. We had mentioned what this film would look like, or a similar film might look like if released today. If 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 they would release the Kraken, as it were, you know, if Oliver Stone would make that, or if, you know, we get Oliver Stone's where we go one, we go all, or something like that. Like, you you can see it happening. Um, But watching this, you see the same tactics get trotted out um, to sort of create this uh, disinformation-fueled, nothing is true or really like you can believe nothing type mentality of conspiratorial thinking. Um, Now the film was produced in the nineties. So I don't know how much of that language is actually representative of what Jim Garrison was saying to the jury in his, his sort of closing arguments or whether that's a much more modern take on what he might have argued, but there's still that idea present in the argument that we see a lot today. And a lot of that thinking gets blamed a lot on things like technology, social media, and its ability to spread and its its prevalence on there. So my question is, is this type of thinking anything new? And if it isn't, how has it changed and, and, and what can we do about it? Because it seems to me that it, it doesn't seem like this type of thinking and the distrust of power and that, that mindset really is all that different than what was going on at least 30 years ago, if not before then. And I, I think that a lot of blame gets placed on things that are, aren't really – Causes, but it might just be, you know, coexisting symptoms. Yeah. So, I mean, it, no, it's it's not at all new. I, I think the line from the film that best, uh, that, that echoes most strongly today, that you could just transpose it in a, a film now, is when Donald Sutherland, Sutherland's ex character says, um, uh, do your own work, do your own research, right? Come to your own conclusions and you can you can figure out this you know complicated conspiracy, but that, that's something today. It's like you don't trust what the CDC says about the vaccine. Go do your own work, do your own research. You don't trust that the election officials, you know, 
uh, you think that they might have stolen the election from Donald Trump, do your own work, do your own research. So it, it, that is very much uh, of the moment. But it is a very old sentiment. I mean, there isn't a presidential assassination that wasn't accompanied by a conspiracy theory. There, there isn't a presidential death. That wasn't a company. But, Death, I should say. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, like, you know, William Henry Harrison. I mean, there were conspiracy theories. You know, I mean, it, it's yeah. not just people who got shot. Abraham Lincoln, he's he's killed by, uh, you know, clearly John Wilkes Booth didn't act alone. There was a complicated Jesuit conspiracy because Lincoln, you know, didn't didn't like uh, northern Catholic immigrants because he knew nothing, something. You know, so every presidency is accompanied by people doing their own work, doing their own research and coming up with complicated conspiracy theories. This one has legs compared to some of those conspiracy theories um, for comp, you know complicated reasons we can potentially get into. But no, it's not uh, fundamentally different uh, today than it was back then. Um, I, so I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I think one of the mistakes though that we tend to make is by assuming we, we forget the past, right? We live in the eternal present. Um, and so we just assume, well, this is novel, this is new, but no, no, that's, that's very familiar. Yeah, I, I think it, it is interesting that this one has had such legs um, because, uh, I mean, there are more recent um, attempted assassinations, I mean, not of presidents, um, but, um, well, I mean, also of presidents because of, of Reagan. But, I mean, I, you know, the um, it's interesting that, you know, people are more interested in this than in, like, the conspiracy theories about the attempt on the life of George Wallace, for example, because from the perspective of 2022, those are both very distant um, I, it makes sense to me that people still talk about the Lincoln assassination because Abraham Lincoln is arguably the most important president in U.S. history. And this came at the end of the Civil War, which was this huge hinge Though, point. You know, it's when was the last time you heard someone seriously propose that Jesuits killed Lincoln? No, no. I mean, outside of the, yeah. Right. But I'm saying <laughs> is that it, there is a constant interest in the assassination. Um, that persists yeah, yeah, for right. obvious reasons. This is a key historical moment. It may have affected how uh, you know the how Reconstruction proceeded and so on. Um, and Kennedy is not uh, not just as not as significant as um, as Lincoln. You know, I mean, he's not as significant as most presidents. He was this mediocrity who didn't accomplish much. Um, and what I mean, my general feeling is i mean and it's I, so why i mean sure right after he dies of course people are going to be um interested in why he, he he was killed but um even uh you know three decades later at the time that this film came out let alone six decades later it's an interesting question um because i think that it basically i mean this is certainly in the case of this film people are not imagining the actual kennedy presidents we we had, but um, the the president they imagined Kennedy would have been if he'd continued. Um, in the case of Stone, he he imagines him ending the Cold War early and other things that were probably not on most people's mind, and also imagines him, um, you know, getting us out of Vietnam, uh, which was on a lot of people's mind. Even though, it I, I recommend people look up and um, the uh, speech that John F. Kennedy uh, was going to deliver. Uh, on the day he was shot, which actually includes uh, uh, an explicit defense of you know assistance to uh, to you know the people fighting in, in uh, Vietnam. To that point, yeah, and we know things now that Stone, to be fair, didn't know in '91, which is we now have the we have declassified archives showing that not only was Kennedy not seriously interested in withdrawing from Vietnam in private, there was all kinds of machinations behind the scenes. Um, 
he approved the he basically they were having issues with the South Vietnamese head of state Ngo Dinh Jim and it was approved that he be assassinated. So just a few weeks before his own assassination, the Kennedy administration signaled it was okay with a coup d'état and the assassination of of the South Vietnamese yeah, head of state, Jim, which was so, uh, which was a much more consequential assassination uh, in was, terms of was. how the it, Vietnam it was, War proceeded. And that I mean that was I but, mean but people didn't know that at the time. Well, that wasn't known until later, there, right? But, I mean. It we have much firmer evidence of it now, but I mean, people were talking about you know Kennedy being uh, involved with it and then. It was and it was clearly the case that you know there was some advanced knowledge in the United States. But I think for a lot, I mean, there is this sort of period that's bookended by Oswald and Hinckley. You know, I mean, it start it feels like it starts in 1963. People looking back retroactively, when suddenly we have this string of assassinations, we have all these riots, we have. Uh, the Vietnam War, we have all this social change. He carries all the way up through things like Jonestown, you know, and finally seems to die down at the beginning of the 1980s. And, you know, these are seen as, forgive the expression, like, you know, the opening shots of that period. Um, and imagining that Kennedy is not killed becomes a way of imagining that the United States doesn't go through this incredibly bruising experience. In my view, if Kennedy, ha- if um, if Oswald had succeeded in killing uh, General Walker, you know, a little earlier and had been arrested, and uh, Kennedy goes through De- uh, Dealey Plaza without being shot, what happens? Well, we still go into Vietnam, and without the, and then without the um, the uh, wave of sympathy for the assassination that helped. Um, LBJ so much in terms of getting stuff uh, through the legislature, we do not get as much liberal reform in the 60s. Um, you, I mean, it's uh, things like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 might just might not have happened, or at least not in 1964, might not have happened so quickly. And that raises the possibility of yet more turmoil over the course of that decade. Um, it's very, um, I, f- I feel like there is a very strong chance that the world in which Kennedy uh, lives, not only whether you're a person who wishes that all that turmoil didn't happen, or you're a person who wishes that you had a reformer friend in the White House that you see, you know, Johnson and Nixon as not being, that you would be actually much less happy with, with that, with that alternate timeline. That's purely speculative, but that kind of, um, and and in some ways, you know, I I realize I'm coming here and and, and offering a more cynical take on politics than Oliver Stone offers <laughs> in, in his movie. Um, but you know, I mean, that was I mean one of the most powerful political critiques, as opposed to historical. You know, like like is this detail right or is this detail wrong? Um, was that you know this um, this movie was um, you know, I mean, and, and this was also true of just in general of a lot of the 1970s. Um, wave of suspicions. I mean, a lot of it, people imagined that there had been, there had been one great president just not so long ago and they took him away from us. That was John F. Kennedy. And I'm afraid you can't even have, you know, that comfort. Um, that that's a, um, it, 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 there's in this, in the summation, um, there, there are two different moments that kind of are in tension with each other. Um, there's, there's a part where talking about how the, um, the government won't release these files, which I think was a legitimate complaint of Oliver Stone's. Um, he has Costner saying, the government considers you children who might be too disturbed to fight face this reality. In the Spain's same speech, he has the line that says, we have all become hamlets in our country, children of a slain father leader whose killers 
still possess the throne, which, of course, infantilizes the whole country. And there's this kind of this authoritarian impulse uh, that would sort of reduces us to children. Um, and there's this anti-authoritarian impulse that says we don't have to be children. And Oliver Stone is sort of you know caught in between um, these uh, th- these two um, th- these two different directions. And and this I think is the the key uh, answer to the question: What do we do about kind of rampant conspiracism? Because we are in another such moment right now. Um, is is I think transparency. Like uh, if conspiracism flourishes. Um, as a function in the vacuum left by institutional distrust, learned institutional distrust, as people find out that the government has been lying to them, then the best way to combat conspiracism and rebuild trust institutions is transparency. So this movie, for example, leads Congress to pass a law that accelerates the release of the Kennedy um, assassination records, the Warren Commission papers, and, and so on. But in general, I mean, I think the, the one of the key tool, one of the key responses to concerns about the effects of conspiracism on American democracy is to stop lying, <laughs> stop covering records up, release them and treat people like adults, not like children. Um, and, you know, that removes a lot of the the, the fuel and the energy behind uh, rampant conspiracy theories, uh, which are always going to be with us. You're never going to get rid of conspiracy theories, but that's the oxygen that gives them fuel, the idea that the government's hiding something. In fact, maybe I can just say the government is actually still hiding things about the Kennedy assassination. There are still thousands of documents that were supposed to be released. Donald Trump said that he would release them if he won the second term. Didn't Joe Biden released some more, but there's still some being held back, which most of which likely point the best guess that, you know, uh, you know, credentialed historians have about who have studied the Kennedy assassination is that they have to do with the CIA surveillance of Oswald in Mexico City, that the CIA knew that he had visited the Soviet and Cuban consulates in Mexico City in, in the summer of 1963, that he had in various places at parties during on tapped phone calls had essentially threatened to kill President Kennedy. Now, whether or not uh, either anyone took him seriously, whether or not the Soviets or Cubans took those claims seriously or encouraged him to act on that is unknown. It's possible he just was he was a bit of a braggadocio and narcissistic kind of guy, Oswald. So we don't know whether but it was embarrassing to the CIA that they had him under surveillance, that they heard him threaten to kill the president and didn't stop him. And so the cover-up, the the real cover-up, the CIA's own internal historian in uh, 2013 released a, a history of the CIA's response to the Kennedy assassination, is that they destroyed documents and stonewalled the Warren Commission about the CIA's own role in surveillance of Mexico City because it made them look bad, right? So there is stuff that the government still covers up, which again provides fuel. So, uh, you know, Oliver Stone's latest uh 20-year retrospective uh, or 30-year retrospective, I suppose, on the movie still is making hay off this idea the government's hiding stuff. So stop hiding the things. More transparency. That's that's my answer. I made it about 30 minutes into the new documentary because I was like, I'll watch that before we you know, have this conversation. And I made it half an hour in and was like, I can't. I can't do this anymore. I was like, it's it, it was all of the conspiratorial like factoid dumping of the 1991 movie with none of the fun <laughs> qualities of it. <laughs> you needed to hire back the same editor, maybe. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I can say. I mean, I went through the journey of when I was a teenager in the 1980s. I read a couple of conspiracy JFK conspiracy books, and I was like, yeah, yeah, because I mean, you're just seeing like him finding the anomalies, you know. And mm-hmm. in some cases, yeah. they yeah. later on turned out not to be anomalies. In some cases, I could see there was a problem, like uh, coup d'état in America had these pictures of the um, the um, uh, the uh, uh, tramps arrested that day and and next to these pictures of e howard hunt and frank sturgis of watergate fame and they were so see they're the same people that's very blurry too i mean this is is consistent (laughs) with it being the same person but also consistent with it being about a million other people you know but still i mean despite some things clearly being um uh um not all that credible um I, I felt like, yeah, it, it, it seems to me more likely than not that there was a conspiracy. Um, and that was still my my feeling when I first saw the movie, although I knew enough to know that Jim Garrison was not the best spokesperson <laughs> from that point of view. <laughs> um, and it and it became gradually, you know, it switched to me thinking, you know, more likely than not that um, there was no conspiracy. Um, but it's been a, uh, I can appreciate how... You know, the Umbrella Man thing. You know, the person who was holding up that umbrella came forward in, I think, 1978 and explained what was going on. This was actually something a bunch of people on the right would do um, to sort of like, it was like some elaborate thing where the umbrellas were supposed to represent Neville Chamberlain because they were accusing Kennedy of being like Chamberlain. And this guy claimed that he actually didn't necessarily buy into that, but he heard that it bothered Kennedy and he just sort of wanted to troll him. Didn't use that word back then. So <laughs> he went there and did that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. he um, did this. And more than a decade after he came forward, I hear the Umbrella Man thing as this unexplained detail. And it was more than a decade after that before I found out you know, what had happened. I mean, so much of this, people talk about the internet um, making it easier to spread things. Uh, conspiracy stories, it also makes it so much easier to quickly look up and see if anyone has attempted to mm-hmm. debunk something. I have this memory, and this must have been around the time JFK came out. It was definitely in the early 90s. It might have been pegged to the movie. But I was listening to um, this late-night talk show uh, just with some friends. When he says, hey, they're talking about the JFK assassination. Let's listen. And it was like it was this sort of crap. They didn't have someone they were interviewing. They were just having people call in with stuff they'd heard. Um, (laughs) And it was like this sort of crowdsourcing. And there was one person uh, who said, you were saying that – uh kennedy had affairs but actually i heard there was just this woman she made that up yeah yeah all right (laughs) next caller you know i mean this is (laughs) and i actually encountered that rumor another time this was not just one guy saying it you know and i'd say you know people who have this i mean i of course paul is a historian of right-wing talk radio so he knows um not calling shows in in, in the period you're talking about you're early 60s but you know the internet is in no way unique in its ability to um to um to spread uh dubious stories and to the extent that it spreads them faster it does make it easier to at least see what other people are claiming in a way that sitting in southeastern michigan listening to a weirdo radio show is is not and the Umbrella Man such a great little cautionary tale, too. I mean, there's an Errol Morris mini documentary about the Umbrella Man, which is very amusing. Uh, but it's a great cautionary tale in that the irony is that con- conspiracy theorizing tends to be predicated on the idea that um, that there's this complicated truth out there where through careful self-study and analysis, you can get to the heart of the truth. 
it's meant to be, it frames itself as rational, skeptical, and critical. But the reality is it tends to be very highly accepting of all kinds of ill-sourced, thinly evidenced rumors that spread around. And it always assumes that nothing is a matter of happenstance. There's no such thing as circumstance or, uh, you know, everything play is a, a little piece in this complicated web of, of lies and conspiracy. So the Umbrella Man, well, he must be sinister. Who has a black umbrella standing near the grassy knoll on a, 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 a sunny, relatively warm November day in, in, in Texas? And well, that it's got to be sinister. Maybe there's a little flechette in the umbrella, and that was one of the the key shots came from the umbrella man right as the president went by. It's got it's got to be sinister, but the reality is that yeah, it was essentially a pre digital trolling uh, act that would have read like that in 1963. But by the time it it metastasizes and becomes part of the conspiracy theories. It's 15 years it's later. Out of the so context. the original reference yeah. point, it's fallen out of the context. So the black umbrella thing was very common in the 1940s, post-World War II context of people being like, never again, we're going to be like Chamberlain at Munich with his black umbrella doing appeasement. We're not going to have a policy of appeasement during the Cold War. That was still echoing 15 years later in 63, enough that it made sense as a troll in Dallas. It's no longer echoing 15 years past that in the late 70s. Um, to, to put that in context today, it'd be like uh, right now, if you were to show up in front of a Supreme Court justice's house wearing handmaid's tail garb, everyone would immediately get what you were referencing. Like, oh, I get you're, you're trolling them saying that, you know, because you're voting this way on abortion, you're about to turn us into a you know theocratic state where, uh, where women are going to be handmaids. Uh, but 50 years from now, maybe even less. I mean, that might have more legs because it's a very popular novel than the umbrella thing, which is a little bit more niche. But it's 50 years from now, will people, you know, people will be like, why are they wearing that weird clothing out in front of us? You'll see a picture and be like, well, that must be sinister. There must be you something. Can you can see a so again, week old tweet and not have any idea what it's referring to because it's just something that was sweeping. I mean, hell, you can see something, a, you know, an hour, an hour old, but Dale. something that's, yeah. that's big enough that everybody's making references to it. If you were offline that day, you're not going to understand it later. I, I will occasionally think, you know, um, someday somebody's going to find some old tweet of mine and, and interpret it. And who knows? I'm not saying like the problematic tweet. I mean, the completely incoherent yeah. tweet um, that somebody's going to try to make, <laughs> yeah. make sense of. Yeah. And this kind of speaks to, um, I mean, Paul's Archer point speaks to what you said earlier about do your own research. I am all for people doing their own research. I just wish they yeah. were better at researching. I, I wish people would learn <laughs> um, the kind of things you have to do in, in order to do research and how much context you're missing. And I, I, I have found, you know, things that I understand think I understand because I know I'm mean, like going through historical work and I and I um and I've spoken to people involved and I've read documents and put things together that other people in my view have, have missed and then later find out there's yet more context I didn't have that adds more illumination to it you know it 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 doesn't even mean that I got it wrong it means there's always extra dimensions and and that just gets you know lost in these um in a lot of these uh uh, these uh, these snipe hunts that people end up taking. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, like the philosopher, Pod. 
Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time.